If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When I have the privilege or the opportunity to speak to couples or to focus on family matters, it is my estimation, according to Scripture, that the best Christians make the best spouses. And the most mature people spiritually can navigate all of the matters that can arise within the home. And so I try to strive for what I would call big rock ideals. If we can align our hearts with these eternal principles, all of the other issues that arise can be successfully navigated if we'll do just that. I think two key integers within the home and the marriage are, one, generous forgiveness has to be readily offered. And secondarily, an alignment with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is a description of biblical love. It is the love that Jesus Christ offered. And I want to just read, I'll begin reading in verse 4 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And I want to jump to verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three. But the greatest of these is charity. If we could simply align our lives with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we would have problem-free homes. We would have trouble-free marriages, not in the sense that hardship and external circumstances may not at times press in on us, but factually, we would be able to navigate each of them in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way. You see, the believers at Corinth were a struggling group of Christians. They were having trouble navigating life in the city of Corinth. They were struggling within the assembly, within the fellowship, right there in the church. They were struggling. They were not honoring God. Carnality had crept in. The reality is when Corinth should have been affected by the culture of that church, the culture of that church was instead affected by Corinth. Now you may not be able to sense that because the Corinthian Christians had the religious thing down. These Christians knew what to do every week. They went to church, they prayed. Perhaps they sang, they listened to a sermon, and even shared a meal together. But in all of the coming and going, in all of the churchly activity, if I could use that, in spite of all the sermons they heard, they struggled to keep Christ-like love at the center of their lives. In all this matter, and in this particular instance, they've gotten themselves caught up in arguments. 
Here they're literally debating who's the most eloquent. That's what they were arguing about. Who's the smartest? Who's the most spiritually sensitive? Who makes the most money? Who does the most community service? They were interested in excellence. There's no doubt in my mind. They were interested in what set them apart. But as the Apostle Paul closes down chapter 12, he says in effect, I'm not interested in your pursuit of excellence. Let me rather show you a more excellent way. And the more excellent way that he shows to them is that of love. And what he outlines in the verses that I just read are a seemingly unattainable level of love. It is the love that Jesus Christ bestows upon us. And I realize that as the apostle wrote these verses, he was writing to a congregation on a topic that they would never really master. And I'm communicating to you this morning from the scripture concerning a topic that we will never really master, but something that we should constantly work at, something that we should persistently pursue. They would need to work on this every moment for the rest of their lives, and so do we. What is it that he's writing about? Genuine love. Authentic lives. Not insincerity, not the maintenance of a facade. Truly a more excellent way. A very specific kind of love. As the Apostle Paul begins this passage of Scripture, I did not read the verses, but he says in effect, I could be really busy. I could be even exercising ministry. And if it does not have love as its motivation, it is utterly useless. If you ever want to be a zero, the Apostle Paul says, then do nothing motivated by, sourced in the love of Jesus Christ. And it will have no effect. It will be a zero. He's talking about agape love. Selfless love. It's a committed love. It's an intellectual love. It is a willful love. It is a love of choice. It is a decisive love. It places value on the beloved individual, even though that person may be undeserving or unattractive. Have you ever met somebody who was undeserving of your love? You ever met an unattractive individual? I don't mean their physical appearance. I just mean an unattractive individual. You get around them and you think, man, would it be hard to love you? It's easy for us in a setting such as this to love on those that are like us. I don't think it's hard for you to love on the other people that are in this room. But it is possible, perhaps probable, that it challenges you to love those outside of this room. They don't think like you. They don't look like you. In fact, they denigrate your lifestyle. They deny your truth. They despise your Christ. It's hard to love them. When the Apostle Paul was talking to Timothy about a a pastor's expectation that he be given to hospitality, that word, when you study it out, means a lover of strangers. He's saying it's really easy to love those that show up and to love those that support you, but it's really hard to love those who are against you. And the expectation here is not that we just love people that are like us, or allow us to do our thing, but that we would love those that are opposed to us in a willful manner. That's the love of Jesus Christ. Let me blow you away with a brand new verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let me just pose this question to you. 
How attractive was the world when Jesus came? How attractive was the world when God gave his only begotten son? How able was the world to return this same quality to God? How worthy was the world of sinners for whom Christ died? Not at all. We do not merit the love of God which has been bestowed on us in the gift that is Jesus Christ. And as in the book of Philippians, we are exhorted to have the mind of Christ within us. We are here in 1 Corinthians, encouraged, exhorted, mandated to love like Jesus loved. That's incredibly sacrificial, genuine love, divinely inspired love. Here I think we have what I would call a primer on how to love. A primer on how to love your spouse. A primer on how to love your children. A primer on how to love your parents. This is how to have a home filled with love. And it's a special kind of love. This isn't the kind of love that says, I love you because you belong to my family. Because even that's hard at times, right? But this says, I love you and I will treat you like family. This isn't the kind of love that says, I love you because you are like me. This is love that says, I love you even though you are unlike me. And maybe that's only in certain situations. This is not love that says, I love you because you meet my needs. This is love that says, I love you and I am committing to meet your needs. This is selflessness. This is true love. And I simply want to walk through this passage of scripture and use it as a primer And here's what we know about this kind of love. Charity suffers long. And we could read that and we could think to ourselves, charity suffers long. Suffering long, that feels kind of like this sermon already and we're just a little into it. Charity suffers long. What in the world does that mean? That means that love takes a long time To burst into flame. How many of you have ever been accused of or accused someone of having a really short fuse? Man, that guy's got a short fuse, man. It doesn't take much and boom, he explodes. This is long fused patience. This is a long fuse to agape. The very word that is used here has nothing to do with being patient with things, that's relatively easy. This has everything to do with being patient with other people. It's one thing to exercise patience with things, but that's not the word here. We must be patient with people, even difficult and irritating people. Otherwise, we would not need to exercise patience. When my wife and I are on vacation, very rarely do we ever need to exercise patience with one another. Everything's good. The moment is such that all is right with the world. But there are seasons where, I'll put it this way, I irritate my wife. Now, you may not have been able to deduce this from our very short time together. I can be an irritating person. I can be hard to live with. I can be exceedingly difficult. I am controlled by habits. I don't like my habits to be broken. I like everything to be where it's supposed to be, when it's supposed to be there. I can be irritating. At times, I engage with people who irritate me because I just said to you, I have to have everything in order, everything in line. I like my habits. And when you disrupt that, you irritate me. 
And there must be seasons where we must be patient, even with difficult and irritating people. This is how to love like Jesus Christ loves. This is loving the unlovely. Jesus said this to us and taught us this motto, recompense to no man evil for evil. This is love to those who are the neediest and the most irritating among us. Paul would write this to the church at Thessalonica using the same word for patience in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward those people that are kind of like you. Be patient toward those that vote just like you. Be patient to those that look like you. Be patient to those that are unlike you. Be patient toward all men. I wish there was a caveat in there. But what we are being taught is true, genuine love like Jesus loves offers patience, long-fused suffering towards every person on the face of the earth. That's hard to do. One author said this, Having patience, this patience, to bear with those who resist change, who are weak in the faith, who are quick to complain, who are forgetful of their responsibilities, who are emotionally unstable, who are fearful, even wayward. Be patient with them all. That's what Paul says. Do you realize that within your home, you're going to be surrounded with people and given ample opportunity to put this into practice? True love suffers long. It's also kind. This love does not stop merely with being patient. It's kind. I have learned this from experience. It is possible to be patient with people and not be kind. I can be patient with you by just going out that door if you go out that door. I can suffer long. I can hold off my explosion as long as you go your way and I go mine. And the Apostle Paul, helped by the Holy Spirit, knows that about us. And he says, I'm not just telling you to be patient with people. I'm also telling you to be kind to them. That's hard. Overtly kind. I said this over the weekend. I reiterate it now. When he wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus, it stands out to me that he had to tell a group of Christians, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. He had to tell a church full of Christian people to be nice. That's what this love is. This word means that we not only take the injury from someone with patience, but we return injury to that person with kindness. It is at this moment that I realize agape love is not for the faint at heart. We are told to love our enemies. In Romans 12, 20, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. This involves literal self-sacrifice. This is self-denying. This is selfless, supportive love for someone that we either do not know or that we cannot feel kindly toward. And at times, those people live in our house with us. This love is kind. Do you surprise anybody today by your kindness? That's something to think about. Is anybody surprised my, by my kindness? Now, nobody in here surprises me when they're kind to me. You know how to do church, and you know I'm a guest speaker, and your job is to shake my hand and say that you enjoyed the message. And I can tell when you're lying. That's your job. 
You're not surprising me when you're kind to me. When I look you in the eye and I shake your hand and say, it's great to be here, am I blowing you away by my kindness? No, you expect that. But I'm asking, is anyone in your world, is anyone in your life surprised by your kindness? They mistreat you, they malign you, and you're kind. And they think to themselves as they walk away, how is that person kind to me? Life will give you an endless opportunity to be unkind, even within your home and marriage. And Paul says, not for you, Christian. You are kind. He then says this, it does not envy. Charity envieth not. It's not jealous. That comes from the Greek word that means to boil. Or to be fervent. The problem is the person is boiling over something or someone that they cannot have. It's poisonous. Envy is poisonous. Study the Bible. And we're quick to point out pride as an egregious sin. And it certainly is. It is the source of all contention. That's what the Bible teaches us. If there is contention within your home, it's pride in somebody's heart. More than likely everybody's heart. But the more that I study the scripture, the more that I realize marriages, homes, families, and churches are wrecked by a spirit of envy. In fact, envy was the poison behind Cain's murder. Jealousy over Daniel's promotion awarded by the king led men to plan for his execution. The jealousy of Joseph's brothers over getting special treatment caused them to cast him into a pit and sell him off into slavery. Even Pilate himself was not confused when the Pharisees drugged Jesus before him, for he knew, Mark 15.10 says, that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. Envy is the rottenness of the bones. Jealousy creeps in and it is poison. It is a destroyer. And we must learn that you might envy the health of another Christian or you might envy somebody's house. It's possible that you might even think of your spouse and think to yourself, why can't you be more like her? Why can't you be more like him? And without even realizing it, you are envy filled and you are jealous. And that's why all the way back to the Ten Commandments, Moses had to say, don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's ox. Don't covet your neighbor's manservant. And in the end, he says, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let me just put this over. Don't be controlled by envy. Do you realize that a lot of the root of our bad moods and our negative dispositions is nothing more than not being able to love without envy? Comparing ourselves among ourselves is not wise. The Bible says it vaunteth not itself. Love does not boast. Love doesn't go around shining a spotlight on itself. The one individual with agape love is not the subject of their own conversations. The individual who brags is merely proving that they are in love. They are in true love. They're just in true love with themselves. This word is a very strong word. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It indicates this person talks a lot about themselves. That's a negative. That's a tragedy. I'll be invited to lunch a lot of times, and this took me a while to learn. As a pastor, I find that when people sit down with me, most of the time they don't want to hear how bad my week's been. You know what I want to tell them? Any guesses? How bad my week's been? You say, has your week been bad? Every one of them. 
Every one of them. Just ask me. They're super hard, and people are super tough, and uh, my life's harder than your life, and uh, uh, you should understand that, and you should listen to me tell you about that. And just when you get started to talk, let me tell you about another situation where my life's harder than your life. And I know you've got that going on, but I've been there before. I one-up you with your hardness by my hardness. Love doesn't vaunt itself. Love does not boast. Love is not focused on itself. This word is very strong. We cannot be full of ourselves and full of agape love. There is no room in our hearts for both. Love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. It doesn't go around with an air of superiority. In other words, don't act with arrogance. This must have been a particular problem within the church at Corinth. Because six of the seven times this verb appears in the New Testament, it appears in this letter to the church at Corinth. This must have been a problem. No one likes a spirit of condescension. I'll reiterate that. No one on earth likes someone to behave around them with a spirit of condescension. Sometimes we think within churches like ours, you know, it's just that people don't respond to our standards of separation. No, they just don't respond to the condescension that oftentimes coincides those standards of separation. That air of superiority that comes off. An air of superiority where a husband steps into the home and acts like he's a despot on a throne with a scepter in his hand, talking down to everybody in the house like they only exist to serve him. An air of condescension that can creep in, an air of superiority that can creep in in places like this, in hearts like ours, because we deem ourselves to be righteous. One wrote, arrogant people think they are better than other people. They think they know more than they actually do. They consider themselves holier than others and imagine themselves more gifted than they really are. They are blind to their own glaring sins, personal weaknesses, and doctrinal errors. True love does not cherish inflated ideas of itself, themselves. Do you know that I know the reason I do everything that I do because I have the monologue in here and I know the motivation from here? And I expect everybody on the outside to judge me by my internal heart set when in all reality all they have to go by is the actions that I carry out. True love is not self-important. It is not in love with itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly. You do a little study on this, and I think this is more important than we give it credit for. It does not treat others rudely. It does not behave indecently. Now, this, in my estimation, branches out through much of the New Testament, becoming more and more rare in the church at Corinth and in our day is the expression of courtesy. The expression of courtesy. True love is polite toward others. Doesn't that sound like that should be back in the children's class? A whole lot of the New Testament really is that basic. True love is polite toward others. True love is considerate toward others. That's becoming all the more uncommon. Listen, this is able to be applied literally in proper and discreet conduct. Which means if I'm going to show true love to someone, I will guard my speech and do nothing that is unseemly. 
I won't say something that wounds somebody else. I won't say something that stings their ear. It even spreads out into dress. Literally, I will not do anything unseemly. I will be discreet. I love properly, so I'm discreet in my conduct, in my dress, in my speech, in my action. That's love. Do you want to know how to have a home that you want to go home to? Don't do anything that is unseemly. That's a home that people want to be a part of. True love seeketh not her own, does not insist on its own way. The Apostle Paul said this, I try, in effect, I try to please everyone in everything that I do. I don't seek my own advantage, but I'm always trying to seek the advantage of many. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. There are two kinds of people in this regard. There are people who insist on their own privileges And those who remember their own responsibilities. There are those who are always thinking of what life and people and God owes them. And there are those who never forget what they owe God and other people and life. Those two kinds of people. You either go through life completely controlled by what people should be doing for you. And what God owes you and what life owes you and what other people should give you. Or you remember your responsibility and what you owe all of them. Agape love is rare. It is genuinely an uncommon concern for others. It is the selfless, sacrificial pursuit of another person's blessing and favor. Let each esteem other better than themselves. This is another principle of Scripture. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is over and over and over and over again. Seek the blessing for other people. Seek that level of courtesy. That is stunning love. When we come together that I want you to have more prominence than me. That I want you to have it easier than me. That I want you to have it better than me. This is unbelievable almost that this is the expectation. Yet Jesus Christ bestowed that love on us. I merit the torment of hell for all eternity. But I am gifted eternal life in Jesus Christ and heaven as my eternal home. It is so stunning that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, allows me to share in his inheritance. I can't fathom that he would want me to gain that kind of favor and blessing, and yet his expectation is that is how I would view you. That's how I would view Christy. That is how I would view my kids. I live my life so selflessly that I want her to be blessed and I want him and her, my children, to have favor. I want them to have that prominence over top of me. True love is always unselfish. It's not easily provoked. Love doesn't become cantankerous when it's disappointed. If you study that word out, it is a fit of anger. To have an inward state of arousal. By the way, that word can have meaning of inspiring somebody else. You know, we are to provoke one another unto good works. This should be a provocative church. You should be an irritant 
in other people's lives in the positive sense. Provoke them to good works. This is literally the negative side of this. This is the negative side, which is irritating another person or to be irritated. When we read this phrase, I think every one of us stamp guilty on our foreheads. Is not easily provoked. Are you easily provoked? Are you easily irritated? Now, that's not just pastor talk. I'm I'm asking, are you easily irritated? I am. I was driving from Pigeon Forge to here yesterday, and I think that I was easily provoked 498 times. Leaving Pigeon Forge, how is the entire East Coast on that one road in Pigeon Forge? That's what I wonder. And when I try to merge out or get through a light or get past the light or go into the restaurant, why are other people also trying to do what I'm trying to do? That should not be. I'm easily provoked. I'm easily provoked. I can be a little bit tired, and and that means that I'm a little bit crabby. And when I'm a little bit crabby, I'm easily provoked. I can come into my house at the end of the day, and I'm easily provoked. Why is that there? Why is this here? Well, sorry, King Dad. We neglected to realize you were about to enter the throne room, and so my backpack was there on the floor. Had I known that the king was about to enter the room, I would have moved the backpack, even though I was sitting there doing my homework. Thank you for understanding me. Get it out of my sight. I am irritated by your presence. Why do you talk to me? Why do you say this to me? Why are you here? Why do you look like that? Why did you cut me off? Why are you in line ahead of me? Think about how easily provoked we are. Bring this into the home setting and you understand crabby is not a disorder of fatigue. Crabby is a disorder of the heart because true love is not easily provoked even when it's pushed to its limits. When we read that, we're guilty. It really takes two people to have a provocation. So the Apostle Paul says, just refuse to be the second person. You say, so what I'm learning is this is exercising intense self-control. Wrong. This has nothing to do with self-control. This is all spirit control. Because you cannot manifest this. Jesus said, I say unto you, resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, Turn to him the other also. True love is not easily provoked. When you find yourself in traffic, easily provoked, apologize to the Lord and realize you are not exercising agape love. You say that is an unattainable level of spirituality. It is the expectation of Scripture. It thinks no evil. We create a mental file room. We store every offense, every injury, and every hurt that has ever been done to us. I love what one commentator said. Resentment has an amazing memory, doesn't it? An amazing memory. I can remember what you were wearing when you told me you did not like me. I remember how the sun shined down on your ugly head. I remember the tone of your voice. I remember what I ate that day. Resentment has an amazing memory. The verb that Paul uses here in this verse is actually an accounting term used for making entries into a ledger. And he says this, true love refuses to tally points, refuses to record offenses, refuses to keep a journal of injustices, refuses to maintain witness to the wounds that happen to us in life. It just doesn't think evil. Now that's easy. 
That's easy. If my wife and I argued in 1999, I have a mental file of what she said. And I have the capacity to say, I know that I'm wrong this time, but how about you remember 1999? How about you just think about that for a second? How about you remember the last time that you did this, and I will bring up all of these moments from the past, and I weaponize them. And what Paul says is that's not how true love behaves. If you're arguing this time, and you're conjuring up last argument, somewhere in there, you've negated to love like you should love. If you are referencing offenses from the past because you've run back into your little mental filing cabinet, for those of you that are younger, that's a big metal box that you pull open and pull files out of. The others of you have saved it somewhere on your device. You go in and retrieve it, and you remind yourself, and you live that pain over and over again, and it makes you look at that person and say, oh, you might be here now, but I remember when. That's not true love. That's a home wrecker. True love thinketh no evil. One of the fine arts in life is to learn what to forget. Webster, that's not a commentator. That's just a dictionary. Defines forget in this way, to cease to remember, to leave behind, to fail to think of, to neglect, either carelessly or willfully, to cease thinking of something. Another writer said, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even larger ones are overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound. Agape love is the key to escaping the cell of bitterness and resentment. And it rejoiceth not in iniquity. Love doesn't delight in anything that is wrong. Love is only happy where the truth is. And it bears all things. Bears up under a great load. True love gets underneath the load of life and bears it to the limit. I have found that most marriages that struggle, Do not struggle because of some cataclysmic event. It is the daily grind that wears them down. Most churches don't fracture because of some cataclysmic event. It is the daily grind. It is the tedium. It is the day in, day out life where we forget that true love bears all things. Literally, it would be this roof which is held up. It is getting under the load of life and bearing it with somebody else. It lends a hand. It shares the burden. It joins the other person underneath the pressure of life. Lends a shoulder to lift the load. It is empathetic, not merely compassionate or sympathetic it gets in and pushes to the finish line believes all things it's completely trusting when we love God like this we take him at his word and what Paul is saying here is take the kindest view take God at his word and take people at face value it's easy to misunderstand someone is it not take people at face value I have to take the simplest approach. Sometimes somebody will come to me and they'll ask a question like, Pastor, why do we have service at 945 and at 11? And I'll think to myself, well, the answer is because we can't fit in here. But my mind thinks, are you asking me because you've already talked to 14 other people? It's clear-sighted. We're able to recognize wrong, but this love, unlike the world, believes the best, eager to believe the, the best. It's uncomplicated. It's without intrigue. It's taking people at their word. That's a great home to go to. That's a great church to attend. And love hopes all things. 
True love never takes anyone's failure as final. The world may frown, but this person is always smiling at you. When the chips are down, this person is for you. The Corinthian church cannot seem to do anything right, and yet the Apostle Paul writes to them, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. How can the Apostle Paul honestly say that? Because he hopes all things. He says to them, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in all things. This is the love that's demonstrated in the heart of a parent who has a backslidden child. A spouse who has an unbelieving partner. The church that has disciplined members who don't repent. They all hope in the love of that child or that spouse or that erring brother or sister. No one's failure is final. It endures all things. What good are all of these qualities if we quit, if we look for some loophole or escape clause? We are told God will never leave us nor forsake us. We are told that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ and thank God for it. Why then do we cut others off so quickly? The love of the world is self-focused and self-protecting and self-enamored and self-serving, but this love endures The word that is used there, endure, is reference to a soldier that is in the battle, fighting for his life, yet refusing to ever leave the front line. This is love for when life gets tough. This takes us all the way back to the vow that we say, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, like there was ever a threat of richer. In sickness, in good and in bad. This is love that doesn't desert the front lines I wish people could comprehend this in the church and in their marriages. It's time for married people to take their hand off the doorknob of the fire escape. Go ahead and nail the door shut. True love endureth all things. True love, Christians, never takes anybody's failure as final. True love endures. What good is all of this if we quit at some point? If we're always looking for some loophole or some out? I believe with all of my heart the best marriages are enabled by the best Christians. And the best Christians generously offer forgiveness often, and the best Christians, the most spiritually mature, align their hearts and their lives with 1 Corinthians 13. And you can't get there on your own. You need the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can take this primer on Christ's love and study it out. I know that we have worked through a ton of scripture, but necessitated to get to the finish line to fully comprehend your hope and expectation for us. May we now in the moment we have remaining be submissive, be sensitive to your leading and surrender, we ask in Jesus' name.